Hello, and welcome to Art Matters at Home, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Arnold Lehman. After a half century in the art world, mostly as a museum director in Baltimore and Brooklyn, and five years at Phillips as senior advisor, which means someone who is old, knows a lot of people, and isn't shy about voicing opinions, hosting an interview series like this seems like a perfect fit for me. So for each episode, like today's, I'll be at my desk having a socially distanced, at-home conversation with friends from around the world, artists, dealers, museum directors and curators, collectors and critics, to learn from them how and what they are doing and what is on their minds today and for tomorrow. So let's get started with our conversation with my friend, photographer and filmmaker, Timothy Greenfield Sanders. Welcome, Timothy. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, I see over your shoulder a poster for your extraordinary film on the life of Toni Morrison. Um, I was knocked out. That's knocked out with tears and laughter and everything else that she's always inspired. Uh, You did a great job. Now you don't have to do anything else. I feel that way. (laughs) You can just sit back and enjoy. Yeah. Um, The reception for the film has to be fantastic. We've had a 97 rating on on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which is quite impressive. And, uh, you know, we screened uh, last year, luckily, before the virus, we were in theaters all over the country uh, with tremendous audiences and reaction to the film. And it's been something I've never had as a filmmaker. I mean, I've had, I've made, uh, what is it, 13 films now, but they've mostly been television films. So this was the first that really had a theatrical uh, life to it. Well, um, you know, the first time we worked together with Toni Morrison was a participant was about a dozen years ago when you did the blacklist at the Brooklyn Museum, the start of many lists, I think 2007 or 2008. 2008, 2008. And um, you had selected 25 outstanding members of the African-American community to photograph in over life size uh, portraits. Right. And we filled one grand space with them, a square space, and it was one of the most moving and memorable exhibitions I think I've ever been involved with at the Brooklyn Museum or anywhere. Yeah, it was it was a fabulous moment too. And you know, and Tony was really the inspiration for that whole series. The the list series went on to become not just the Blacklist Volume One, but Volume Two and Three, and the Latino List and the Out List and all of these. But you know, I was sitting with Tony uh, in about 2005 in my kitchen in the East Village. Uh, we were doing press for press pictures for Margaret Garner, the opera she had written the libretto for. Yeah, of course. And she said we should do a book of black divas, 
because I've met so many divas, you know, to, to, to interview for this opera. And that got me thinking about a kind of concentrating a portrait series on just African-Americans. And that became The Blacklist. And Tony and actually Thelma Golden were the first to sit for it that first day. Uh, we're our guinea pigs to kind of figure out the look of it and the whole thing. Well, I remember it. I remember it so vividly. Yeah. At, I don't know how we had such a perfect space. Just, just to- you know, that, that show kind of, you, you were very prescient, I remember, because it was about a, a year or two before it was finished. And I came to you with these, you know, say, I'm doing this and it's going to be a film. And, you know, it's kind of in the works. And you said, I want to do it. And, I, and that really helped a lot to kind of convince other people that we had the museum behind us. So I, I, I thank you <laughs> publicly. Well, no, no, no. It's, uh, <laughs> it was, it was. But our, we did the Latino list at the Brooklyn Museum as well a couple yes, of years later. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, no, no, it's our thanks and all my colleagues to you. Um, not only was it a, a fabulous exhibition, but it was, um, you know, you always have glitches uh, with exhibitions, and this exhibition had no glitches. Yeah, thank you. Uh, which was really, which was really remarkable. I was so happy you got to watch the Tony film because there's, you know, uh, so much art by African Americans in the film, and I thought you would have, you know, you would be. <laughs> I was, I was enjoying every single. A group of um, every single individual artist who is portrayed or showed their work. I knew every one of them. And I think I did an exhibition, a solo exhibition for almost every one. Really? Or including them in a large measure in a group exhibition from Aaron Douglas yeah. uh, to Mickey Thomas um, <laughs> to. Um, uh, Rashid Johnson, Dave Ringgold. I, I mean, think. you name yeah. it. They yeah. were all there, and they fit so perfectly into the context. The other thing, and it's so well demonstrated in the poster behind you, yeah. is that jigsaw yeah. of the of the introduction yeah. of how you you dealt with a chronology through these overlays of right. photographs and materials and flowers. And it was, it was a breathtaking. That was, you know, that was Micheline Thomas, who I, I, I know so many artists, as you well know, but I didn't know her personally. And I called her up, you know, and I just said, hi, I'm in the middle of doing this film on Toni Morrison. And she said, I'm in. And it was, you know, and that was the reaction I think for so many people, uh, particularly the, the, the African American artist, was when I mentioned that it was about Tony. She meant so much to them personally. I think that they were just so generous with their work. And uh, Micheline, you know, I said, "Look, I, I want to leave it up to you. I'm going to give you a bunch of photos to play with, and you know, come back to me with something." And that opening is a spectacular uh, rendition by her. Now, before I forget, I want you to tell a story about another great woman artist that you told me so many years ago. And I repicture it and repicture it in my mind. I only wish I were there. Uh, it starts with your assistant coming in and saying, 
guess who is on the street gathering bits and pieces <laughs> from the garbage? Uh, my assistant told me to, to look outside. I ran out and it was Louise Nevelson going through the garbage in front of my house on Second Street. And it was a particularly good garbage day because it was broken chairs and pieces of wood and kind of odd, you know, wooden objects, really. And there she is with full makeup and, you know, dressed to kill. And it's clearly Louise Nevelson. And I walk over and I say, hi, I'm a photographer, you know, and I shoot portraits of of artists and I'm a big fan of your work. And she turns to me and she says, I am not Louise Nevelson. <laughs> and continues pulling gar garbage out of the, the dump there. And was, I, you know, I, I was speechless. I, I, for the first time in my life, I think speechless. So I'm happy you remember that story. <laughs> I just love, I just loved it because I could see it. I yeah. could see it happening. I could yeah. see her going along <laughs> And she had a car, someone in the car driving along. Her, her friend was in the car in a station wagon. I mean, I, I, all this stuff yeah. into it to take home and to create her wonderful assemblages um, <laughs> of this. So I'm glad to know that it's good garbage day in front of your house. Every artist who is now watching or listening to this is going to come by on garbage day. Oh, it's... Uh... It's, it's all there for the picking. <laughs> uh, good choice of words. So with all this going on, and now with our being confined to homes, studios, wherever, wherever we can find a niche that's uh, comfortable or at least workable, uh, what are you doing? What, what are you up to? You know, there are so many projects that I put off that are computer-based. Um, uh, a lot of it is kind of organizing my archive and very, uh, I'd say 90% of my archive is digitized. So it's really an opportunity to look at this gigantic archive of digital images and make sure everything's correct and organize it better. So. You know, photographers tend to be organized that way. It, you, you can't be a photographer and not know where your negatives are you know, at, at an instant's notice. So um, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. And I'm, I'm about to start printing as well because I do have inks and paper and printers here. And um, I'm going to start printing some of the series that I've developed over the years and just have a, have full sets that I can sign and prepare that way. So I have plenty to do. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly sure of that. And by the way, going back to your story last, did you ever take that photograph of Louise, of whoever was pretending to be Louise Nevelson? I never, she never would pose for me, no. I, I, and I, I, unfortunately, I didn't realize that I had a very close connection to her through Bill Katz, who we all, we all know Bill Katz. I went to school with him. And Bill was very close to her, and I could have probably just picked up the phone and he would have arranged it, but uh, right. I didn't. Uh, Bill, was the, Bill was the connection to the two or three artists that I never got to shoot. Uh, Francis Bacon was another one who I would have loved to have shot, and I did, couldn't get to him, and Bill was close to him. And where could you possibly have set up in his studio? I mean, there was I, I, no level space. The the I think it's Peter it's Peter Beard's photograph of Bacon's 
uh, studio, the tremendous mess that's there. It's an amazing picture. Um, the late Peter Beard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, what, there are a handful of artists that I just have not had the chance to shoot and some have de died, so. Well, so I wanna ask a question. What in your long and very, very successful photography career, what was the most embarrassing moment that you ever had, other than accusing someone of being Louise Nevelson when obviously <laughs> we're not? Um, gosh, that's a, I, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. Um, I, I don't think it's so much that there are embarrassments. I think there are moments where I wish, when I look back, I wish I had been pushier. I wish I had insisted a little bit more to get the person to sit for me. And there were two people. George Balanchine was one, and the other was Brando. And I, and I had, with Balanchine, I spent a day with him, and I brought a camera along. I was a young photographer. And I was told, bring your camera, but you know, he might not let you take a picture or this or that. And I didn't take the picture. And I think I look back at that day and regret it so much that I didn't finally say, you know, can I just grab a shot of you here? You look so good in this light or something like that. And with Brando, <laughs> I, it's a, again, a Toni Morrison connection, oddly enough. I, was at a party before I was leaving for California to go shoot some of the porn stars. And a, someone I was talking to was a friend of Brando's. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to shoot him. He said, well, you know, he's a fan of Toni Morrison's. I know you know her. Here's his fax number. So I wrote him a fax. And I said, you know, I'm coming to California tomorrow and here's my phone number in, you know, in New York. You can reach me through my office. And I'd love to talk to you. And, you know, Tony and I are friends. We have a mutual friend. And as I'm leaving the door, I say to Karen, my wife, by the way, if the phone rings and someone says it's Marlon Brando, it's Marlon Brando. <laughs> and so the next day, I'm in the middle of shooting porn stars. I mean, it's, it's right on the set. And, and I had a cell phone that someone had lent to me. It was the early days of cell phones. And it's Brando. And he wants to talk about Tony. And I stopped everything. And I did almost an hour with him on the phone talking about her and trying to kind of ingratiate myself to get to where I could come and meet me, you know, sit with you. And I wasn't aggressive enough. You didn't care that your porn stars were getting. Oh, no, they could, they, for Brando, they could wait, you know. Uh, I think they're all used to waiting. So um, it, it's, it, it's those regrets that I have more than embarrassment. Well. That's good. That's good. But if you if you think of an embarrassment <laughs> late tonight, let me know. We could always edit yeah, it. Edit I it think in. there are always moments when you're when you're doing a portrait, you're very very careful to about what you say. It has to. Your the conversation has to feel very relaxed. But at the same time, you could say something wrong that could trigger your subject uh, the wrong way. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's complicated as a photographer to kind of walk that line. And I can think of things where maybe on a set I've said something and I thought, oh, God, I, should, I shouldn't have said that. But nothing, nothing major. You know? And you can, uh, it's interesting to me not being a photographer, being a very bad photographer, which is 
worse than being not a photographer at all, um, is that you can sense when a subject, someone who's come to sit for you, that the moment has changed or lost or yeah. gone bad. Yeah. And uh, the second part of that question is, can you then retrieve it? You know, you can see in the face pretty much everything. And, and, and it's, it's partly why, you know, I use very large format photography, large camera, large negative, and I only shoot a handful of pictures. So my sessions are, you know, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes at the, at the most. I shoot maybe six frames. So it's very concentrated and, it is, and it also kind of enjoyable or interesting for the subject. You don't get to the point where the subject is bored. And that's when you lose everything, when there's sort of boredom on the other side of the camera. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot easier working. Well, I think it's a lot easier working with you than some other photographers. Um, well, uh, I think, you know, Arnold, I, I know pretty much what I want out of the portrait. And I can see it in the face pretty quickly. I, I think I have that ability. And, and therefore, I'm not wasting anyone's time. I think a lot of some photographers just keep shooting and hoping they're going to get something. But you can't be a prima donna also by saying, you know, I think this is not working. Let's try it another day. I mean, when you have someone no, of, the, of the significance of uh, almost anyone that you shoot, yeah. you can't say, well, we'll do it next Tuesday. No, then, I don't you know. have that luxury. You don't have that luxury. You have a kind of a job to do in a sense. And you know, your hope is that all these things come together on the set, the lights, the, the person feels good about himself or herself. You know, it's so many things. And then to make it look simple and to feel like, it, oh, wasn't that a great little moment there? You know? Right. On the other hand, um, a photographer that you know well and I know well and consider a friend, I think once took 400 <laughs> photographs of me. Uh, still when film was being used oh, God, yeah. and I don't know how long I sat there, but it was click, 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 yeah. click, click. And, and then, and he knows this because I've told him, uh, for the book in which my photograph appears, I said, he's, how did he choose the worst photograph out of 400 <laughs> photographs? And I think he said, I was just lucky. <laughs> 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 That's a great answer. Two different approaches. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, I shoot digitally uh, a lot now because it's, it's, it's enjoyable. You can see the image immediately the way I did with Polaroid in, in the old days. But I shoot digitally the same way I shoot large format. I shoot a handful of frames. I don't shoot, you know, a hundred digital shots. Even with no waste of film and... It, it, it's just like, I, I, I know how to get what I want very quickly and, and, I, and I know when I have it. And then I'm kind of like, you know, we're done here. The other memorable, the, the, <laughs> the memorable photography session that I recall so vividly is one of the shelter magazines was photographing our our space in Baltimore mm -hmm. and the the interiors photographer if I'm oh my god I can't remember his first Gili uh Umberto, Umberto Gili, Gili, Gili Umberto. was, terrific, a, terrific was the 
uh, photographer who'd been assigned to this. Yeah. And he spent a lot of time looking at every different space and so on. Right. And he particularly loved the kitchen. But the kitchen was all stainless steel and gray granite. Right. And he finally said to his assistant, who did everything for him, who right. loaded the camera, who lit his cigarettes, who did, you name it. And then he finally turned to the assistant and said, we need red. We need red. Go get me red. And the assistant sort of looked at him and said, red? He said, yes, red. Red flowers, red fish, red meat, red something. We need red. So the poor assistant ran down four flights of stairs. Our kitchen was on the top floor and came back an hour later with a big bag full of red fish. And so he laid them out on the counter and Julie said, perfect. <laughs> and I said, you expect me to stand near these red, disgusting fish? And he said, who's talking about your standing next to him? I want the fish. I want you. <laughs> so it was a downer. Yeah. But he got his red fish. And, you know, the truth of the matter is so many years ago, like 25 years ago or so, I don't remember if the fish appeared in the story. <laughs> He's a he is a terrific photographer of 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 you know interiors. I admire him. He made yeah. a still life. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, I think all photographers have a kind of each has his or her own way. You know, you kind of find that over your career. You know, I started out in in large format because uh, of Betty Davis, who I had the chance to spend a week with and who told me about George Harrell and, you know, kind of we're driving around and I was her driver for a week. A um, week with Betty Davis? We're talking about the actress. We're Betty. talking about the actress, Betty Davis. Wow. Yeah. So when I was at film school in Los Angeles at AFI back in the seventies, they had visiting dignitaries and, and, and I was sort of the school photographer and I leaned down to shoot her portrait. And she said to me, what the fuck are you doing shooting from below? And I said, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of learning, you know. She says, well, drive me around, young man, and I'll teach you about photography. So I drove her for a week. I would pick her up in the morning, and we'd go to her agents and have a Bloody Mary and kind of hang out and go shopping and things. And as we're driving, she would say, you know, you see how that light's hitting me? That's the key light. And you should look at George Harrell's work. He works with a big camera. And I started to kind of, you know, get interested in portraiture that way because of her. And I fell in love with it, really. And I owe it to her, you know, her kind of advice. And she, she, she clearly saw something in me. You know, she knew I had some talent, I think, in some way, because we got very friendly. And, and uh, I learned kind of that, that, that large format aesthetic. And when I came back to New York, I started to shoot the art world using an, a large format 1114 camera. Wow. So when you were at AFI, were you there primarily for photography or film? No, there was, or I was there as a filmmaker. So I, my career started as in film and I left, I, I got my degree in film at AFI and then became a photographer. Because I, I think to a great extent, because as a photographer, it was all mine. And it was my art. And as a filmmaker, it was very collaborative. And I started to think, you know, this is 
I'm not going to work with all these people and do all this stuff. I think I'm going to just take portraits because it's me and my work. And when I came back to New York, I started to shoot the art world because those are the people I knew, young artists, Cindy Sherman and Julian Schnabel and David Sally and, you know, all of the people who are my contemporaries. Uh, and those were the beginning portraits of mine, as well as my wife's father's friends. He was the founder of the ABEX movement, Yope Sanders. So I, through him, knew de Kooning and Motherwell and Larry Rivers and Milton Resnick and Lee Krasner and, you know, all of those people. And I was sort of shooting the old timers and the young up and comers. Well, we're now, we're now getting a good estimate of your age. Yeah, well, I'm 68. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, I feel like I've done a lot. The, um, so, so what's going to be the world when we finally can take uh, some time out of doors? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm an optimist and I think there will be a cure. I think there will be a, some treatment at some point that will cure this version of it. Um, you know, I can't even describe how much suffering there must be going on outside for everybody else. Uh, I mean, it's just beyond, and we don't even need to go into the mistakes of our government and our president. It was obvious. Um, I, I, but I'm in some way optimistic. I'm already beginning to hear from people that they're starting to think about how to get back into work and stuff and do things. So. People are very inventive. <laughs> it's just that it is at my age, and I, you know, I'm not ashamed of being 68. But at 68, you have to deal with the the virus very differently than if you were in your 20s or 30s. Ah, Timothy, 68 is approaching early middle age. <laughs> well, since I'm just a few years older than you are, and I'm sort of getting into between early and middle middle age yes. um, I think 68 <laughs> is is not adolescence but certainly the prime of youth I, I still feel I have a couple pictures left in me and maybe maybe a film or two so you know I don't feel I'm marginalized but I do accept my position in terms of chronology of my life well so you had some regrets of people who are not around anymore who you didn't shoot. Yeah. Um, and I can't ask you if there's one. If there were two or three people alive, working, active in the world today, um, who you would give anything uh, to be able to photograph, and this is a good vehicle, you could reach them, I'm sure they're listening, um, who would that handful of people be? God, that's that's a hard one. Um, I, I would I would eliminate Hollywood because that's a, that's a whole other kind of world. That um, I, I would say just a handful of artists that I haven't shot. You know, uh, Robert Gober is one that I admire so much and and doesn't really sit for photographers much. And uh, who else? Um, you know of. Well, Judd is dead and I never got to photograph him. So I, I look at it as kind of the big body of my art uh, world work and who's missing from that. Um, the good news is that there's so many great young artists coming up 
and that I would love to shoot them. So I think there's not a, uh, a, a lack of, there's not a paucity of people. <laughs> there's just plenty of people out there to shoot. Uh, it's just, you know, how, when do I do this? Is, this may be a silly question, but is there anyone under any circumstances that you wouldn't take a photograph of? Well, I've already photographed Trump, so that would have been the answer. Um, you know, as awful as some people are, there's something fascinating about photographing them and having that kind of intimate moment with them, even someone like Pence. I mean, it would be interesting to have that shoot, just to kind of watch how he operates. So I, I can't say I wouldn't shoot someone with that in mind. I mean, there's a million, there's a lot of people that I would not want to shoot because they're horrible people, sure. I think that's a great, I think that's a great answer. Um, like, you know, everyone deserves uh, a good defense. Right. Everyone probably deserves uh, a really insightful photograph. You know, you know I'll, I'll add to it. I photographed George Bush uh, Jr., I guess, uh, right, at the White House in uh, the beginning of, uh, I guess it was 2004, he was running for re-election, right? And I wanted to take a really mean, tough, awful picture of him. That was my, you know, hope that I would at least get one like that. And he was too good. He would not, you know, grimace. He smiled the whole time. He was so camera adept that it was kind of challenging in a sense. I mean, I got one that's kind of a tough picture, but it's not, it's not the picture I wanted uh, to show, the, the, the man who you know, led us into Iraq and the man who did so many awful things, uh, who now looks like a nice guy in comparison to the president. Well, um, probably because of your photograph. <laughs> Timothy, I can't thank you enough. Um, thank you. And the good news for this program is that I don't have to follow a lot of people around for weeks trying to find them. <laughs> um, and, and everyone is pretty relaxed, which yeah. is even better. And I am very grateful, though, because typically uh, you and I are generally surrounded by a lot of people. Right. And we don't get a chance to speak like this. So let's make a pact that when all this is over, we will um, we will uh, have a nice dinner, yes. something. Yes. Um, you know, I, I would add one thing about this moment that we're all in, which is that in my career, I've always wanted to have time to think more about what I wanted to do next. And now I have it, you know, there's, there's a kind of moment here where you have all this extra time, if you can use it to kind of think about what's important to you and, and what really matters in your career and what, you know, what was a waste of time. So I, I'm trying to kind of use this moment to, to, to do that. Well, um, well, then I'll come back. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks. Love to. Anyway, thank you. And thank you for the Toni Morrison film. Thank you. Take care. Okay. And be well. Bye. Bye-bye.
That was my friend, photographer, and filmmaker, Timothy Greenfield Sanders. I hope you will join me for my next episode of Art Matters at Home when Barbican curator Eleanor Narn will be with us. Thank you.